Good morning. My name is Scott Holly. I'm one of the elders at Green Tree. Tom Ricks is uh, taking his youngest child, Jordan, down to uh, second semester at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. So he will be here tonight with us at our service at the Magic House, but asked me to pinch it for him today. Sermon titles, you can see, is Two Circumcisions. That's a title that makes a lot of men nervous because we don't remember the first one. Be that as it may, we're going to talk about circumcision today, which is obviously an odd thing to talk about. It's not something that, in, unless you're a, 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 an expectant mother, you don't really think much about. I mean, it doesn't come up in conversation. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. We don't really think it's particularly important. It's something that is done once, and then we are done thinking about it for life. But it was very important in Jesus' time. It was very important in ancient times for reasons which we need to establish before we jump into the text. We're returning today to a sermon series on Romans. We've taken, we've taken a step away from that during the Christmas season, but now we jump back into Romans, Romans chapter 2, verses 25 to 29. What we're going to do, however, before we go to Romans, is go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis, to look at when circumcision is first, really first becomes an issue. God appears to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he establishes a covenant with Abraham and with Abraham's people. A covenant is a divinely orchestrated, divinely initiated contract, essentially, between God and man. And in this covenant, God promised that he would honor Abraham by making him the father of a mighty nation, and that all the world would be blessed through Abraham. After that initial covenant, God returned to Abraham on multiple occasions and extended the covenant or, or clarified things. And one of those times occurs in Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 to 14, and that deals with the issue of circumcision. So before we go to Romans, I, I, I want us to look at what God is saying about circumcision and why it matters and why it would matter to Paul's audience in the first century as he writes the book of Romans. So we're going to not go to Romans now. We're going to go to Genesis 17, verses 10 to 14, and here is the word of the Lord. This is my covenant with you and, with your, and your descendants after you, this, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You would undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household are bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, if you look at the last two sentences in the verses we just read, you can see why this would be a big deal. You can see why, to a first century audience, they would think circumcision was vitally important. To repeat, my covenant is to be an everlasting covenant. This is not going to go away. And then the last sentence, if you've not been circumcised, you're cut off from your people. You've broken my covenant. So to talk about circumcision to us is sort of a shrug your shoulders, who cares? But to talk to people in Jesus' day, especially in the Jewish tradition, was far from a who cares. It was an important issue. So let's open in prayer, and then we'll take a look in, at the Romans passages and see what we can learn about how circumcision is at all relevant to us today based upon this background. So let me open in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. And though we look at circumcision as 
something that we really is we really don't even think about it matters and i pray that you would help us to understand that today and i pray that you would understand why you care about us so much and why we and how we should respond because of that thank you father for your love thank you that you've been speaking to people throughout the generations and that your love for your people is eternal it's a great gift to us lord and we pray that we can recognize that gift today we ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Okay, rather than reading all the, all the Romans verses as we begin, what I'd like to do really is just sort of go through them a little bit at a time. Look at the first verse and the second and the third and so on. We're going to put the last few verses on hold until near the end of the sermon. We'll come back to them at that point and look at them. But the initial verse, Romans 2.25, says this. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you'd not been circumcised. Now, the problem in Paul's day was, the problem in Jesus' day was that to a lot of people, circumcision was a ceremony that essentially acted as if it were a spiritual insurance policy. Well, I've been circumcised, and I'm done. That is, I can live my life pretty much the way I want. And Paul is saying that's not it at all. If you fail to observe the law, then don't call yourself a Jew. Don't call yourself a person of God. Circumcision has value, he says, if you observe the law, but if you disconnect circumcision from obedience to what God tells us to do, then it's an empty ritual. It means absolutely nothing. He then says in verse 26, so then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? In other words, it's not surgery that makes a difference. It's not an operation done on an eight-year-old child. It's whether the person lives in obedience to God's law. That's the measure of a man of God. That's a measure of a woman of God. It's not something external to us. It's not something done to us at birth. It's something that is a lifelong process of obedience and recognizing our dependence upon God. Obedience, not ritual, is what matters. And the problem that Paul is addressing is that a lot of people, they simply were going through the motions in their faith thinking, well, I've got my insurance policy, so I don't really need to worry about anything else. But Paul goes on to say in verse 27, the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. He's saying people who have not been circumcised or obey the law basically are going to stand in indictment of you who have been circumcised but ignore the law. What's Paul saying? We can't live our lives dependent upon ceremony and ritual and routine to think that that's going to make a difference in God's eyes. He's saying it's something far more than that, and it's based upon the obedience to God's moral laws. Do we pay attention to them? Or do we think, if I just go through the motions, in our context, if I simply go to church, give some money to the church, do some good deeds, say say a prayer occasionally, read the Bible every once in a while, all is well. Paul's saying this isn't about ceremony and ritual and routine. It's about something else entirely. It's true in the Old Testament, too, despite the importance of circumcision. We see in Ezekiel 33, verses 31 to 32, these words. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts <clears throat> excuse me, are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words but do not put them into practice. Now, I don't know if you notice the phrase that's repeated in those verses I just read. They do not put them into practice. Don't go through the motions 
Ezekiel is saying. Don't go to church, sing beautiful songs, tell God how much you love him, and then don't put his law into practice. Don't ignore what he says. Don't think that ceremony and ritual and routine is going to make a difference. Singing beautiful hymns is fine. Saying prayers is fine. All the things that we do as a part of our our religious lives are fine, but there's got to be more to it. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Ezekiel is saying. And the danger is, and the problem is, that for a lot of us, it's so easy to fall back on behavior. It's so easy to fall back on routine or ceremony or ritual. I do it. I do it all the time. I became a Christian when I was a sophomore or a junior in high school. For the first three years of my Christian life, I really didn't get it. I mean, my my commitment was real, and 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 it was sincere, but I just didn't really understand much of what it meant to be a Christian, so I really floundered to a large extent. I wanted to be a Christian, tried to take it seriously, but really didn't know how to do it. It wasn't until I went to college, and, and I was discipled by a guy who was about four or five years older than me. He met with me regularly. And he would read the Bible with me and pray with me and sort of walk me through the Bible and tell me who God really was. And bit by bit, the Holy Spirit began to open my eyes to to what it meant to be a Christian. It wasn't really, though, until my sophomore year, the fall of my sophomore year, this this guy, this friend of mine, invited me to go to a Christian conference, a three-day conference, that it really began to take in a deeply meaningful way. There was a speaker there who challenged us on many, many levels to take our faith seriously. I don't remember much of what he said except for the very last thing we did before, before the conference was over, and that was this. He was making the case that it's important for people of God to read God's Word regularly, to be in the Bible. And I found that to be an inarguable proposition, but it didn't mean I necessarily read the Bible a whole lot as a young man. But when he said that, I, said, I had to agree and say, yeah, it is important to do that. And he said, you know what? If I challenged you to read the Bible an hour a day, you wouldn't do it. Our lives are busy and we'll make too many excuses and it's hard to do. And so if I asked you to do that, you wouldn't do it. If I asked you to read the Bible for a half hour a day, you wouldn't do that either. But is it reasonable to ask a person to read the Bible for five minutes a day? Can you do that? He said to us back then. Can you read the Bible for five minutes a day? And it's hard to say, no, you know, I can't find five minutes to read the Bible. I just can't do that. That's too much. I mean, I couldn't make that case. And then he said, I want to challenge everybody in this room to make a vow before God today to read God's Word every day for at least five minutes for the rest of their life. And filled with idealistic zeal, I said, sign me up. I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. I can, I can read the Bible for five minutes a day for the rest of my life. Why not? Well, that was 40 years ago. I made that vow. And you know what? I've kept it. I've read the Bible every day for at least five minutes the rest of my life, which makes me sound really righteous and pious and a man of God, right? I mean, Cal Ripken and Lou Gehrig, you put them together, their streak doesn't even begin to measure up to mine. 40 years. (laughs) But I'll tell you what, that's a joke. Do I read the Bible every day? Yes, I do. I do. But it's about me. It's not about God because the way I read the Bible is I'll get the Bible out more often than not. I'll get the Bible out. I'll open it up to wherever I am in the Bible and I'll start to read it. And my mind will wander. I'll put in five minutes, but my brain might be connected to the process for maybe 23 seconds. I'm thinking about everything but God's Word. All I'm really doing is punching a clock. 
I'm looking at the clock saying, when's the five minutes up and then I'm done. Now, there are days that's not true. There are days where I really do read the Bible in a meaningful way, and I really do ask the Spirit to open my eyes, and it's an important part of, part of my life. But there's been more days than not where it is punching the clock. There are more days than I care to admit where I've gone to bed at the end of the day, and I'll lay my head down on the pillow, and all of a sudden I go, Oh, I haven't read yet. And I'll jump up, grab the Bible, go in the bathroom, turn on the light, sit on the toilet, and read. It's always important that I grab my watch so I can make sure I don't read... God forbid I read for six minutes, but I'll read for five, I'll get my five minutes in. The minute the five minutes is up, back in bed. If you would ask me two minutes later, what'd you read? I might get in the right book. I might get in the right chapter. If there's a story involved, I might know the story. But it's not honoring God. It's about me. It's about keeping, keeping a streak alive. It's about my ego. God sits up there and looks at me doing that and goes, you are such an idiot. Are you kidding me? But that's what I do. That's what I do. See, that long ago promise has become, become for me my circumcision. That external ritual, that external ceremony that I go through that's supposed to say, God, I'm yours, but what it really is about, again, is my ego. It's about my pride. It's about showing Cal Ripken and Lou Gehrig what's what. It doesn't honor God. He doesn't want empty routine. He doesn't want ritual. He wants our hearts. Now, I think a lot of us have private little acts of circumcision, so to speak. Those things we do which we think will earn God's favor. Why do we go to church on Sunday? Do we go to church because we want to worship God? We want to express our gratitude to Him? Or do we go to church because that's just what you do? Because that's the routine. Because I want to be seen there. Because it'd be embarrassed, I'd be embarrassed not to go. Why do we go to growth groups? Why do we give money to the church? Why do we go on Homes of Hope mission trips? Why do we work with the poor? Why do we volunteer our time at church? I mean, maybe we do them for the right reasons, but do we always do it for the right reason? Does it become about us and not about God? I think it's very easy to slip in that pattern where we have our own version of circumcision that's about ritual and routine and obligation. and not about gratitude and humility and service. Now, David understood the the danger of that. He said it very clearly. God doesn't want external ceremony. That's not what it's supposed to be about. David said in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. What is it that God wants? David says it, a broken and contrite heart, a heart that recognizes that relying upon our version of circumcision isn't, isn't the way to God. It's instead recognizing our need for God, recognizing as David is doing, as he's repenting of a sin, I need you. I cannot please you on my own. I am a 100% dependent upon you, God. Now, one person who understood that message was John Calvin. John Calvin was one of the great reformers of the age of reformation 500 years or so ago calvin was french by birth but the the bulk of his ministry was spent in geneva switzerland and calvin was a guy who really did understand grace and he wrote about it voluminously he preached about it continuously calvin understood that if we try to earn god's pleasure we're pursuing a life of folly that god loves us in spite of our sin that god recognizes our sin and they died on the cross to pay for our sin. And, and Calvin recognizes how insidious 
Legalism can be. Legalism being trying to prove to God we're worthy by measuring up to some set of, some set of external standards that we generate in our own mind. Somehow thinking that if we obey God's laws, we're going to be good enough. And Calvin said this in a statement I think is really clear and really damning of our attempts to earn God's love. He said, If one had to contribute even only a pebble to one's own salvation, one would lie in lifelong fear that one's pebble was just not big enough. If we think we're going to earn God's love, then we're going to become obsessed about that. We're going to spend our life worrying, have I done enough? Can I do one more thing? And Calvin's saying that's nonsense. But here's the problem. Calvin became so influential in Geneva, and he attracted so many followers, that after a period of several years, his followers gained control of the civil government in Geneva. And when they did, they began to pass a series of restrictive regulations calling people to conform to a certain prescribed set of behaviors. Here's among the things that were outlawed in Geneva, Switzerland during Calvin's time by Calvin's followers. This list comes from William Manchester's book, A World Lit Only by Fire. Here's the list. Feasting, dancing, singing, pictures, statues, relics, church bells, organs, altars, candles, indecent or irreligious songs, staging or attending theatrical plays, wearing rouge, jewelry, lace or a modest dress, speaking disrespectfully of your betters, extravagant entertainment, swearing, gambling, playing cards, hunting, drunkenness, naming children after anyone but figures in the Old Testament, reading immoral or irreligious books. Now, that's a ridiculous list. I'm sorry. That's a ridiculous list. How do you put together this pebble statement and that? It shows you how dangerous legalism can be. How even the people who get it up here in their heads don't get it down in their hearts. Just like me reading the Bible day after day after day. I understand grace as an abstraction, but why don't I live that way? We can't build our life on a ridiculous list. We can't build our life on external ritual, on obligation on ceremony, and on laws and rules and regulation. Now let's go back to Romans. And let, as, as Paul fleshes out the argument, let's see what he says. We're going to look now at verses 28 and 29 and see if it's not rules and regulations, what is it? He says, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. What does that mean? The circumcision that matters is not this surgery performed on an infant. The circumcision that matters is the circumcision performed on our heart by the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit opening our hearts and minds and eyes and soul to the reality of who He is. When we understand how much God loves us, how, how dependent we are upon Him, how helpless we are to overcome our sin apart from His love and the power of the cross, circumcision of the heart takes place. We've got to understand that reality. It is God's love and not our actions. God's love opening our hearts and minds and souls and eyes to the truth of that love that makes all the difference in the world. Now, this is not just a New Testament idea. The Jews placed great stock in circumcision, but they, they understood that circumcision alone wasn't enough either. Look at Deuteronomy 30, 30 verse 6. It says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. There it is again. 
circumcision of the heart. And there's a phrase in there that really matters. That you may love him with all your heart. Ceremony doesn't make us love God. Ritual doesn't make us love God. Law doesn't make us love God. The Holy Spirit, in transforming our hearts and opening our eyes, can help us to love God. Now, I teach in a school in which we have a lot of rules, just like every school does. We have a dress code. Now, the kids, more or less, adhere to the dress code. There's always some outliers who will violate any rules, but most kids, day after day, will adhere to the terms of the dress code. Recently, we did a survey at the school of all the constituents of the school, the parents, the alumni, the alumni parents, students, staff, faculty, administration, everybody you can think of who has a stake in the school. And we asked a wide range of of questions about attitudes toward the school. One of them had to do with dress code. It was interesting to see that 46% of the students currently attending school think the dress code stinks. They don't like it. Now, most of them adhere to it. Most of them obey the rules. But they don't obey out of any any devotion to it or any love for the rules. They just do it because rules can affect our behavior. Rules can shape our behavior. They absolutely can. We all obey rules we don't necessarily agree with just because that's the way it is. We don't want to get in trouble. We don't want to look like idiots. And so we'll obey rules. Think about traffic laws. There's speed limits all over the place. Now, I obey the speed limits more or less. More or less is a key phrase there. I, I don't really want to go whatever the speed limit is. If I'm driving from here west on 70 and the speed limit's 70 miles an hour, I don't want to go 70. That's too slow. I'm in a hurry. Now, I'm not going to go 90, but I probably will go somewhere between 70 and 80. The laws will restrict my behavior. They won't. I, I will obey the law enough so I'll kind of adhere to it but I'm not doing it out of any love for the law. I'm doing it because I don't want to get in trouble. That's the problem with the law. We may obey, but it doesn't really evoke any great emotion. Last year, I had a conversation with two of my students. These were two kids who were really great kids, a guy and a girl. They missed class one day because they were involved in an abstinence education program. They were involved in this organization that goes to high schools throughout the area, public and private alike, and does presentations on sexual abstinence and why kids should avoid sexual activity. And when these, and these kids missed my class, so I asked them when they returned to come in and see me to find out what they'd missed, and they did. And as a part of the conversation, at the end of talking about schoolwork, I said, when you go to make a sexual abstinence presentation, what do you say? What are the reasons that you, you argue that kids should avoid sexual activity? And the reasons were threefold. Number one, you want to avoid unplanned pregnancy. Number two, you want to avoid contracting an STD. And number three, you want to avoid heartache that may accrue if you are... Uh, involved in a sexual relationship gone bad. And I said, well, those, that's fine. I mean, that's good as far as it goes, but is that where you stop? Is there anything more? And they said, that's where we stop. And I didn't really say this to the kids at the time, but I thought, you know what? That message, I think, has a limited shelf life. I mean, it's good as far as it goes, and I, I certainly think those things should be said, but is that really what's going to ultimately shape our behavior? Saying, don't do this for this reason. I mean, I think we all have an ability in our own mind to consider ourselves bulletproof, to think the rules don't apply to us. The drunk who gets behind the wheel of the car on Saturday night after hanging out at the neighborhood tavern for three hours thinks, well, I'm not going to get arrested. I can handle it. I'm not going to cause an accident. 
The soldier who goes into battlefield, battle, into battle never thinks that the next bullet is for him. And two kids alone on a Saturday night in an empty house, things start to heat up. Don't think, you know what, I better stop because. Now, to some degree, maybe. To some degree, maybe, yes. But really, what changes behavior? It's the circumcision of the spirit, the circumcision of the heart. That's what Paul is talking about. You want to change behavior? It's not rules and regulations that change behavior. It's a recognition that God loves us. I mean, think about what motivates you for those of you who are married. Do you treat your wife, your husband, with respect because you signed a contract long ago that said you would? You put your name in a marriage license and said, I'm going to honor you, and this is going to hold me to it? You know what? I don't, I've not thought one second about the fact that I signed a marriage license after the day I did it. We do it because we love our spouse. We're operate, we operate out of love and respect, not rules and regulations. The thing that we seem to forget and the thing that Paul is saying is if you really want to change behavior, you really want to see people's lives change, don't talk about rules and regulations. Don't talk about the circumcision that's out there. Talk about God's love. God's love changes lives. When we talk to our kids about the enormity of God's love for us, the fact that he wants us to live lives that are full and whole and complete, that he wants us to live lives that are free from guilt and recrimination and shame. When our kids begin to understand that and they're operating on the basis of the heart and not rules and regulations, then maybe that will affect behavior in a meaningful way. And maybe when we understand the same thing, that will affect our lifestyle and our behavior in a meaningful way. Why do we go to church? Do we go to church because we're expected to? Or do we go to church because we want to say to God, thank you? Thank you. Why do we give money to the church? Do we give money to the church because we feel like, well, I'm a member of, uh, it's like being a member of a country club and I've got to pay my dues? Or do we give money to the church because we want to say, God, thank you for what you've done. And I want to return to you what is rightfully yours as a statement of gratitude and humility. Paul is saying that the circumcision of the heart is what really makes a difference. That is, the understanding of who God is, how much he loves us, and how dependent we are upon him. That prompts real change. So, bottom line, what is Paul saying? Two things, I think. Anything we do, even the most sacred acts of our lives, can be done in a way that does not bring honor to God. If we try to approach God in our own terms and we reduce our Christian life, our spiritual life, to ceremony and ritual and routine and the things out there, then we are dishonoring God. We cannot depend upon the, our works to bring glory to God because he wants our hearts. So if, number two, if we want to live a life that's pleasing to God, we must undergo a circumcision of the heart. We must say to God, okay, I get it. I can't please you because I am so selfish, so driven by ego. So please, Lord. Split open my heart. Let me see and experience and feel on a deeply personal level the enormity of who you are and the truth of my need for you. That's what changes lives. They said it in Deuteronomy. They say it here in Romans. Humility, gratitude, and love change lives. Rules and regulations do not. That's what Paul understood. That's what we must understand. If we want to live a life pleasing to God, we must undergo the circumcision of the heart to say, God, open me up to who you are and not depend on ceremony, ritual, 
routine, and law. God loves us. God loves us. And we got to get that right here. Let me close in prayer.